This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Really, other than COVID-19, the biggest story in London right now, and that is that the chairman, the CEO of the London Health Sciences Center, uh, Paul Woods, was terminated this week. And it dealt with a travel that was repeated over the Canada-U.S. border that initially was thought to be, okay, that's, you know, they know what's going on, then they don't know what's going on. There's been some mis-messaging, it's felt like, from the board itself. But what does this mean? Because now, as you've been hearing from Scott Monick, we have seen Dr. Woods file a $2.5 million lawsuit. He was let go by the hospital board after news that he had made five trips to visit family in the United States. And he's seeking $1.4 million for the bad faith termination. And then that is the amount equal to his base salary. He's seeking a million dollars in damages for loss of reputation and $100,000 for breach of the Ontario Human Rights Code and coverage of all legal expenses. So let's talk now with Howard Levitt, Canada's leading employment and labor relations lawyer. Howard, you've been able to look at this case. What jumps out to you? The stupidity of the hospital. (laughs) Frankly, that's what jumps out at me. They gave him permission, as I understand the facts, to leave. Therefore, they knew they had no cause. They didn't allege cause, but they fired him publicly, and then they changed their story on whether or not they gave him permission when apparently, as I understand, they clearly did. And we're dealing with public funds. So if you don't have a case, you don't pay a million dollars, then 600000 to his replacement plus recruitment costs of other couple of hundred thousand positions like that. You say, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have given permission. It's our fault, not his fault. We take responsibility. We take accountability. And we say, this is now our policy going forward. If you do it again, you'll be fired for cause. And that's the end of it. And it's a, a one-day news story, which we've forgotten about by now. Instead, they've now got a $2.5 million lawsuit. Now, it's not really a $2.5 million lawsuit because he's not going to get $2.5 million. He's going to get whatever's in his contract and maybe another fifty dollars or $100,000. But still, it's a waste of taxpayer dollars. And it's the old story where, unfortunately, people can play with other people's money. And that's what happened here in deciding to fire him and paid out that kind of money. Howard, we have seen... In a way, the hospital board be supportive of Dr. Woods at first, and then in a statement earlier this week, they outlined his termination. How much does that matter when we're dealing with a legal case now? Well, the fact they changed their story is going to make it hard for them credibly, credibly to argue they acted in good faith. It looks like they acted to protect their own political hides and, and to virtue signal to the public saying, well, now that we've seen what happened to Rod Phillips, now that we see what's happening generally, we're going to jump in that bandwagon. But that's not fair to him. So that's why he's making a claim for additional monies. Obviously not the million dollars he's claiming, but some additional monies. Howard Levitt joining us, employment and labor relations lawyer. Howard, how does this play out? Is this going to be something that can be over quickly, or is this something that could drag out for a long period of time? He is hoping that by asking for $2.5 million, however frivolous that demand is, that he'll panic people into saying, don't 
have a lot of expense with public money and therefore justify a higher severance payment quickly. But if they don't settle quickly, it could go on for three years. And the legal fees kind of build up over three years, don't they? They don't build up over three years. They build up over the various steps taken. The problem is sometimes there's many, many months wait between steps. There's no legal fees being built up during those months of delay, but there's certainly, um, it certainly will be an expensive process by the time it's all said and done, but it'll be expensive for both sides. And you only get part of your, of your legal fees reimbursed when you win, not all of them, usually about half. Howard, something that has come out of this is a conversation about contracts and attracting top-line executives and what should and shouldn't be in there. Do we see a standardization of a lot of these contracts in today's world of top executives? I think the answer to that is no. You see decreasingly standardization you see individualized individualization to a large extent individualization i should say to a large extent in executive contracts more than ever before because there's more people at, at the you know involved in the process it could be me it could be a different lawyers it could be any any of a number of people there's different directors who have their own views of what should be in a contract there's people with their own demands there's people who are hiring lawyers to help them make those demands so it becomes quite individuated People try and find out what other people have got, and they ask for the same thing. But at the end of the day, the more people are involved in getting executive contracts, the less likely there's going to be a standard form. Howard Levitt joining us, Canada's leading employment and labor relations lawyer. Howard, one of the things that will stick in a headline is severance pay. And this person received $1 million after things didn't go the way that everybody thought they would. Their contract wasn't completed. They were terminated, whatever. And they get this big severance buyout. Can you put that into perspective for us as to how common that kind of a practice is and and why it makes such a headline? Well, it makes a headline because it's it's a big dollar for most people who are so many of whom are unemployed right now. Secondly, it makes a headline because it's taxpayer dollars being wasted on severance, because severance is always a waste of dollars, and so far as you're not getting value in return for those dollars. So it strikes people who are themselves not doing very well in this country as particularly egregious. Their dollars, what they have of them, are going to be spent to pay someone a million dollars, something that's beyond their wildest dreams personally. But it's a function of what the contract is, and the fact of the matter is, if you're going to hire a top hospital executive or any top executive of a major company, and a major hospital is a major company, you're going to have to pay that kind of money. You're going to have to have a contract that gives them a guaranteed severance pay, especially if you want to attract them from another job to take this job. So it's not uncommon at all. What's the interesting thing here is, is the public nature of the dispute. And the fact that they gave him permission on the one hand and then turned around and fired him for it anyway and then made a big to-do about it in the media and spent that kind of money when it would have – I think the public would have been much happier if they just said, you know what, we did give him permission. We, we, it's our mistake. We shouldn't have. We're not going to punish him for our mistake. People would say, well, that's pretty responsible. And by the way, this is our policy going forward. Even though the law doesn't pro- prohibit people from leaving the country, it's 
good guidance not to do that non-essentially. So we're going to make that a prohibition at our hospital. And if you ever do it again, you will be fired for cause. If anyone here does it again, they'll be fired for cause. Fair enough. And everyone would understand that. What they don't understand is giving them permission and paying out a million dollars of somebody else's money to pay for your mistake. Howard, thank you so much for your insight. Okay. We really appreciate it. Take care. Look forward to That is Howard Levin. We'll speak again for sure. Howard is Canada's leading employment and labor relations. Twenty twenty one has begun. We know it would feel a whole lot like twenty twenty to start with. Maybe it gets a whole lot better toward the end. That's the hope. When we're dealing with the virus, we know there are things that we're being asked to do. When we're dealing with our economy, we know that the government at the federal level has spent a lot of money. We know that at the provincial level they have spent some money, they've implemented new programs. So what are we looking at going forward? What do we have to watch for from an economic standpoint as we continue to make our way through 2021? When we have questions like these, we like to go to our good friend, Professor Moshe Lander, who's a senior lecturer in economics at Concordia University. Professor Lander, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So as we start 2021 we knew, yeah, not a lot is going to change, but at the same time, from an economic standpoint, we're carrying some luggage. We're carrying some luggage of what has been done almost a year to the day ago. How do you see things shaping up as we go forward? Are, are we in okay stead when it comes to federal monies? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by okay. Um, <laughs> does the federal government have the capacity to keep paying out SERB payments and other supports uh, to small businesses and wage subsidies? I think they can. They do have the ability to order the Bank of Canada to turn on the printing presses and print as much money. So, I mean, in that sense, they do have the capacity. And as weird as it is, Canada entered the pandemic in pretty good fiscal shape. So there's a lot of capacity there to kind of run up the bills. Uh, without it creating a major long-term issue. But the fact is that, you know, I, I think we need to view 2021 as let's get this over with and let's get back to life because I'm not sure that if this drags on to 22, 23, 24, uh, they're going to be able to keep it up without real consequences. Right. And what would those consequences be? From the federal government standpoint, if they start running up the huge tabs on deficits and the debt starts to reach unsustainable levels, then you could see bond markets start to get a little jittery. And if they get jittery, what's going to happen is that interest rates are going to shoot up. And at that point, if you think about the number of businesses that have their ability to acquire funds tied to those interest rates, they could find themselves very quickly unprofitable, more unprofitable, tipping towards bankruptcy and the knock-on effects for lost employment. And uh, it, it could be very, very severe. Um, in terms of businesses themselves, of course, it, the, the longer that they're forced into stay-at-home orders, and I was listening to the last segment with a whole bunch of unclear sorts of rules and regulations, uh, this makes it difficult for them to make decisions that are 20, 30-year um, issues with building a new factory, replacing equipment, um, changing locations, expansions, and things like that. And so that's going to start to stunt their ability to grow, and that's going to limit their ability to employ more people, and of course, people themselves are going to start to experience difficulties paying rent, mortgages, 
Uh, and you could see a spike in bankruptcies that could easily happen the longer this drags and the more uncertain the, the, the world gets. Right. We're talking with Professor Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer in Economics at Concordia University. When we're talking about something broad, like how the federal government is dealing with this or the state that the country was in, that's one thing. When we start looking, like you say, at bankruptcies of companies or individuals' bankruptcies, is our economy structured where, hey, we can help out to some extent if there are a few of those, but if there are a lot of those, does it change? Yeah, you know, the, the government is going to have to start making some really difficult decisions. And it's something that even in the first kind of wave, I was cautioning that the government need to consider, which is there's some businesses that are going to go bankrupt that probably were going to go bankrupt anyway. Their, their business model was broken. They were maybe operating in industries that didn't have much of a long-term future. And so if they go down, while that's tragic, of course, for everybody that's involved in that industry, the fact is they were probably in a dying industry to begin with throwing government money at trying to extend their life nearly risks turning them into zombies that they're half alive half dead that's probably a bad move and when the government has limited funds or limited room before the danger signs kick in they maybe need to say as terrible as it is we're letting you go but business models that have or businesses that have a viable model beyond the pandemic and they're merely just victims of the pandemic those are the ones that you want to try and provide support to to help them get through and then the role of the government is to try and move the disrupted industries to the winning industries as quickly and seamlessly as possible, retraining, um, income support programs, uh, and uh, speeding things up through like bankruptcy proceedings so that those assets can be moved to where they're best utilized. Right. Professor Moshe Lander joining us from Concordia University. Professor Lander, are there areas that you are watching closely when it comes to economy or markets or anything like that as 2021 really starts to unfold here? So I'm going to look at two things that are actually doing reasonably well, and they make you scratch your head, and that's property markets and financial markets. So despite all of the doom and gloom of, like you said, almost a year to the day, right, where all of this kind of washed onto North American shores, financial markets are doing rather well. Um, housing markets continue to defy expectations and do well. And part of that is a result of when you have massive amounts of government money being pumped into an economy, it has to be channeled into somewhere. Um, students in you know, university economics would say, well, printing money is going to lead to inflation. But we haven't seen inflation. So where is that being channeled? Well, it's going into financial markets and housing markets. And so they're starting to disconnect a little bit from reality. And that usually means that at some point, somewhere along the way, there's a correction coming. And so once that correction comes, how much of your wealth is tied up in your home? How much of your wealth is tied up in stocks and bonds and mutual funds? And if that goes down, then all bets can be off because whatever small comfort households have, uh, they could quickly find themselves in a real situation. So I think we kind of know what the pandemic has done to bricks and mortar stores and things like that. But those are the markets that uh, I'm really kind of keying in on to see if there's warning signs there, then it's, it's run. Professor Lander, we always appreciate your insight. Please keep safe. Thanks so much for the time. And here's hoping that, yeah, we can get things back on track sooner rather than later and we don't have to worry about enormous picture economics and we can just deal with, okay, we had an off year last year. Let's see what happens next year. You too, and can't wait to get back to London safely. So <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to do this in person at some point. Take care. Let's hope so. That is Professor Moshe Lander. 
And Professor Lander is at Concordia University, where he is a speaker and lecturer in economics. Let's head to the United States. Allison Keyes is a CBS News correspondent for Politics, Diversity, and the host of the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Allison, thanks for making some time for us. You're welcome. It's uh, a little busy in D.C. this week. No doubt. I will will not uh, take more than five minutes of your time. Right now in D.C., there is, of course... The articles of impeachment being read and the move toward what would be a second impeachment of President Donald Trump. What are you waiting to see from what happens today? What is happening right now? Right now, the House is debating a single article of impeachment, which is the charge of inciting an insurrection just seven days before he is due to leave office. And it's contentious because Basically, the lawmakers are still really scared and freaked out over the horrific and deadly assault on the Capitol last week. Democrats are basically saying that President Trump needs to be gone now because they are afraid that he might incite more violence and who knows what might happen before actual impeachment. Republicans are saying that this is another attempt for Democrats who have been trying to get him out of office since 2016 to get him out. They don't think this needs to be done now. And Some Republicans have said that they have concerns that if they do this, it will incite more violence. In fact, President Trump said yesterday that the whole movement toward impeachment was really angering a lot of his supporters. So it's a little tense. And I have to tell you, in the city itself, I live in the city, people are very afraid. There is so much security. So many streets are closed. There are people with automatic weapons at the Capitol and many streets into downtown D.C. are closed. These streets near the White House and the National Mall are full of security, and it's really, really, really frightening. A lot of people have been debating on, uh, like, that. Ne- there's a neighborhood website called Nextdoor, and they've been debating, so should we evacuate? And the thing is, they moved up the security preps in D.C. that wasn't supposed to start until the 19th, but they moved it up after what happened last week. And the FBI is still looking for people that were involved in that assault on the Capitol. So people are just very afraid. Allison Keyes joining us, CBS News correspondent and the host of CBS News Weekend Roundup. Allison, one last thing, and that is leading up to Inauguration Day. Is there any change in the way that that's expected to play out in terms of the ceremony itself or even any talk of that? Well, I can tell you that the mayor and D.C. police and the inaugural committee, in fact, have asked people not to come here. Not only is there the continued danger danger of COVID-19, there's now the security concern as well. They're asking people to stay away. Airbnb has just said that they're going to cancel all reservations during inauguration week. They're going to refund the guests and reimburse the host, but they have canceled existing reservations and they're blocking new reservations. And on top of that, they have also banned people from their platform that they have identified through either media or law enforcement as having been involved in the criminal activity at the Capitol building. They're telling people not to come into the business district of D.C. And if you do, you have to show a reason why you are essential business. And hotels are worried because a lot of them are in that area. So this is going to be an inauguration like no other and no one is quite sure what to expect but there have been ongoing threats of violent demonstrations or armed militias coming into the city beginning this week 
we'll see what happens. Allison, please keep safe. Uh, you have such a, a beautiful part of the world, and I hope it remains that way. Thanks for the time. You're welcome. That's Allison Keys, CBS News correspondent and the host of CBS News Weekend Roundup. If you've never been to D.C., not now, but at some point in the future, do take a trip there because there is a, there's a great feeling to it. It's a great place. And to know that streets are being closed and that kind of danger exists and that kind of concern exists. Can you imagine if we were sitting here and you name where you are, if you're in London or you're in Tilsonburg or you're in Woodstock or Ingersoll or Strathroy or St. Thomas or wherever you happen to be, and all of a sudden the conversation between you and your neighbors is, do we evacuate? Not because of a storm, not because of wildfires, not because of anything like that, just because of a fear of your own safety? Do we leave, even in a pandemic, when we're all being told to stay home? Do we leave? You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 